Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. A new wrinkle in returning to sports following an infection with COVID-19 emerged in recent weeks. There is concern about potential effects of the virus on the heart. With sudden cardiac death in athletes a concern for all of us in sports medicine, any issues that could cause cardiac damage may get your spidey sense tingling. On April 24th, a blog in British Journal of Sports Medicine written by two of my guests today, Dr. Kim and Dr. Martinez, as well as a few other prominent physicians in the area of sports cardiology, was published and I believe was the first to call attention to this topic. A recent article from May 13th was then published as a viewpoint in JAMA Cardiology expanding this concern and providing an algorithm with suggestions in evaluation and management for athletes with COVID. Today's podcast will touch on these expert opinion recommendations and hope to provide additional clarity as to the level of concern we should have in dealing with our athletes who may have been infected with COVID-19. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We have a big panel with us today. So to start introductions, first off, Dr. Jonathan Kim was one of the lead authors of the JAMA Viewpoint article and is an assistant professor of medicine and chief of sports cardiology and the division of cardiology and orthopedics at Emory University, and additionally holds an adjunct professorship in the School of Applied Physiology at the Georgia Institute of Technology. He completed undergrad at Emory and then medical school at Vanderbilt. He completed his residency in internal medicine and pediatrics at Massachusetts General Hospital and his cardiology fellowship at Emory. He is the team cardiologist for essentially all of the Atlanta pro sports teams, as well as at Emory and Georgia Tech. He is a member of the NBA Cardiac Advisory Committee and the American College of Cardiology Sports and Exercise Council. He is currently the chair for the conference called Care of the Athletic Heart to be held virtually on June 20th. Dr. Matthew Martinez was a contributor to the JAMA Viewpoint and is a director of sports cardiology and co-director of hypotrophic cardiomyopathy program at Morristown Medical Center Atlantic Health System in New Jersey. He completed his medical school, residency, and fellowship at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Martinez serves as a cardiology consultant for elite and professional athletes, including acting as the lead cardiologist for Major League Soccer, team cardiologist for the New York Jets, and cardiac consultant for the NFL. He has also served as the Educational Program Chairman for the International Athletic Heart Symposium on Management of Athletes with Cardiovascular Risk. Dr. Ian Law is an international respected pediatric cardiologist. He is a professor of pediatrics and the director of the Pediatric Electrophysiology Program and of the Pediatric Cardiology Division at the University of Iowa. He completed undergrad and earned his medical degree at the University of Iowa. Dr. Law then completed his residency in Pediatric Cardiology Fellowship at the University of Michigan. His research interests are in the area of pediatric rhythmia management. He is the former president of PACES, the Pediatric and Congenital Electrophysiology Society. Dr. Andy Peterson is an accomplished pediatric sports medicine physician and an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Iowa. He completed undergraduate at Lawrence University and medical school at the University of Wisconsin. He did his residency training in pediatrics and completed fellowships in both primary care sports medicine and clinical research at the University of Wisconsin. He now directs the University of Iowa Primary Care Sports Medicine and Sports Concussion Programs. He works clinically as a sports medicine physician and as the head team physician for the Iowa Hawkeyes. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having us. Thank you. 
I am thrilled to have my guests on today as we tackle this topic that, to me at least, raises more questions than answers about what we should be doing when talking about return to play for athletes who may have been infected with COVID-19. My hope today is that the discussion can provide some additional clarity as to what may be best practices, in particular for the large group of pediatric and adolescent athletes. I think the first area to cover is what exactly are we seeing as far as the effects of COVID-19 on the heart, and then why do we need to be concerned about that in athletes? First off, I just want to thank you, Mark, for having us on this panel. This is certainly an honor to be here and to collaborate in this discussion with my colleague, Dr. Martinez, as well as other uh, experts whom I don't know personally, but I'm excited to get in this discussion. I think uh, one of the first things to emphasize is we don't know COVID-19 that well. I think we're all aware of that. We're, we learn new things about this virus every day. That being said, your first question about what we're seeing on the heart is concerning. I also think it's important to differentiate what we're seeing between adults and pediatric patients. In the adult realm, what we're seeing among hospitalized COVID-19 patients is a high prevalence of uh, acute cardiac injury. And there's a spectrum that we can certainly talk about, but it's a, it's a high prevalence depending on what study you look at, anywhere between 20 and 30%, just to give a ballpark number. And to put that in some context, if you look at other viral infections, that number is maybe around 1%. So there's a predilection for the heart. We're seeing that, of course, with many other organ systems as well. But it's certainly driving much of our concern as it relates to some of these recommendations early on about athletes. Matt, anything you want to add to that? Thank you for having me. I am excited to participate in this podcast. And the only thing I'll add in is that most of our information is on hospitalized patients, as mentioned, whether it's the left side or LV dysfunction or arrhythmias, both atrial and ventricular. We're also learning more about the involvement of the right ventricle and its importance and, and identifying that as a potential harm for patients with poor outcomes with COVID-19. Ian, anything that you've been seeing from a pediatric standpoint? You know, I think you know, we're fortunate that the majority of the, well, I'm not fortunate that adults have gotten the disease, but less than uh, 2% of the patients in the U.S. are pediatric patients. So we have a much smaller set to look at, evaluate. But I think what we're seeing is, as seen in adults, that the likelihood of getting a cardiac involvement is higher than the general viral population. And any virus can lead to atrial and ventricular arrhythmias. Thus far, I think we've been relatively protected from the arrhythmias thus far, uh, but I think over time, we may have a better understanding of this. You know, if you look at all the patients that have had the disease in the U.S., pediatric patients, less than 0.5% get admitted to the ICU, and of those, the majority get better with IVIG, the immunoglobulin therapy. So we've not had to deal with these significant arrhythmias, but I think they, they will be seen. It's just that it's going to take a little time for this to rear its ugly head. I'd just like to add as well, just for this specific question, again, it's important to note that when you specifically think about our JAMA piece, that these were really based off some of the early early data that we're seeing in adults. We all know that, thankfully, outside of this new inflammatory syndrome that's being described in children, that children do overall better. And so the conservative nature of the recommendations are certainly based on the older patients that we're going to see. And I think you can include your collegiate athletes, where you draw that line in the sand with your older high school athletes may be something we can get on in this podcast. But I do think overall that the conservative nature, as you get younger, you probably can become a little bit more relaxed. I know that's a question we're going to get into later on about um, how challenging 
challenging it is in the general pediatric world with well checks, et cetera, and, and the feasibility of doing all of these recommendations. And we think about that for adults as well. I mean, you have to take into account healthcare resources and just how practical it is. You know, obviously there's plenty of high school athletes out there that have no insurance and getting an office visit, much less an echocardiogram is going to be extremely challenging. And so we have to take all of that into account. But overall, again, I think much of the concern we're seeing are really within the adult population. And Andy, as these types of things kind of came across, were there things that kind of raised red flags for you just dealing with this as a pediatric sports medicine specialist? You know, you deal with collegiate athletes, you deal with obviously a group of high school athletes and younger, anything that was kind of concerning to you when we think about the pediatric population? Well, the bulk of my time is really spent with our collegiate athletes. I, I don't spend a lot of time with high school and younger athletes these days, but there's a lot of work right now going into getting our college athletes back to campus as safely as possible. Most of the Big Ten is trying to bring back their football players sometime in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I think one of the ironies here is that while we don't know a lot about how this virus affects the heart in that age group, we're going to learn a lot as we bring people back. You know, we just had a head team physicians call with the other Big Ten head team physicians, and everybody is intending to test and everybody is intending to do some type of cardiac screening on their athletes that either had symptoms of COVID or tested positive for COVID. While we don't have a lot of data in young, healthy athletes at this point, our first real data set is going to be in college athletes as they come back to play, because pretty much everybody is testing and pretty much everybody is doing cardiac testing. Pretty soon, we're going to have you know several thousand student athletes who will get tested across the Autonomy 5 conferences. You know, we'll get cardiac testing if they're at risk for having had COVID or test positive for COVID. You know, we're not going to know the answer to this question until we're actually going full go. Andy, you're at a Division One college, and I'll let my cardiology colleagues chime in on this as well. How much different is this going to be for you from a screening standpoint than it would have necessarily been in a normal year? Because I know a lot of universities already do screening EKG. Some of them do screening echoes. What is your plan in place that you're going to do? Our baseline is we do not do additional cardiac screening. So we follow the American Heart Association recommendations. We get a history and physical examination on all their athletes when they return to campus. We do not do ECG or echo unless there's some reason to do it. That said, we've got a low threshold for pulling the trigger. So if anyone even has a soft symptom, they tend to get tested. But we don't do screening tests on our athletes. That's obviously very controversial and probably a topic of another podcast. But for us, at least, we don't do baseline screening. What we're doing this year is anyone that had symptoms consistent with COVID after February 1st or tested positive for COVID at any time, they're getting high sensitivity to troponin and echo and an ECG. I think that reflects what you're hearing across the country as well. Jonathan, unless you're doing things differently around you, each university seems to be tackling this in a different way with a thoughtful approach, but one that reflects what type of athletes they deal with, whether they are football athletes or, or another fall sport track and field. If, if, they are, if they're coming back, depending on the type of level of athlete, each school around the U.S. based on these intermittent conversations we've had in the last several weeks seems to be handling it to best serve their individual athletes, which is an appropriate response. I would disagree with that a, a little bit. You know, at least in the Big Ten, there is remarkable conformity here. So everyone seems to be doing essentially the same thing. There is some variation in what type of testing people are doing. Some people are using antibody screening instead of just history. But if someone seems to have had the virus or is at high risk for having had the virus, pretty much everyone in the Big Ten is doing the same thing. I haven't had conversations with the other Autonomy 5 conferences, but at least in the Big Ten, there's remarkable conformity. But some schools are already getting ECHO and ECG on them every year anyway. Correct. Yep. 
Right. So that's that's what I'm getting at, that each school, much like the screening debate, is doing the same sort of discussion with this and deciding what's best for their own individual practice. That's been what I've seen. I think this is a great topic of discussion. In some ways, it, you can kind of split it into two avenues dealing with the athlete who has COVID. And I do think these early recommendations are helpful. We also know that there was a document published in European Heart Journal that came out this past week, as well as another piece, I believe, in BJSM. So there's you know, up to five pieces now that have made relatively similar recommendations about what to do with the COVID-19 athletes. So I think in agreement with what's going on in the Big Ten, there is going to be conformity, which is exactly what we wanted with the JAMA piece. One of the challenging things that I've witnessed, and probably not a topic for this, so I don't want to get too much into this, but I do think it's important to highlight. So I represent Georgia Tech, Georgia Institute of Technology. And the challenge right now are thinking about these athletes coming back during the summertime, maybe not necessarily to ramp up to train, but just to, uh, you know, with these facilities that are opening up. And with that, I do think there is a lot of variation with what's going on. Uh, I can certainly, uh, from just conversations I've had in the uh, Atlanta Coast Conference, basically every school is kind of doing different things and are going to be guided by their public health specialists. And this is certainly a public health question, but it does impact us on the sports cardiology side. I mean, ultimately, we need to be comfortable with these athletes coming back. And I think kind of the the gray zone population, if you will, are the COVID unknown asymptomatic athletes and the concern of asymptomatic spread prevalence of asymptomatic COVID for which we don't know. And again, this is really getting outside of my lane now, so I won't comment anymore, but I can tell you that I've had many a discussion and, and there are really no great answers when you start thinking about really understanding who may have this virus and who doesn't. It's easy when they have fever and they've lost taste and you test them and they're positive. And now we have a framework to think about that. But just thinking in general, as all these athletes come back and in agreement with what was said earlier, yeah, we're going to get a ton of data up front. I think we're going to learn so much over the next few months, which is uh, obviously what we need because there's just nobody knows what the right answers are right now. Jonathan, that brings up an interesting point for me. Do we know anything thus far as how COVID affects a relatively healthy athlete? And I'm not talking about the recreational athlete like myself, but I'm talking about, you know, our collegiate athlete or a younger, healthier athlete. Do we have any data that's out there that's looked at this and people who have had COVID and what their exercise tolerance may be afterwards? I'm sure Dr. Martinez can comment on this uh, after me. It's a great question, and I wish I could give you an answer. <laughs> we don't, and that's part of the reason why we're so conservative just by what we're seeing among these hospitalized COVID-19 patients and understanding. Again, we're not entirely sure what the mechanism is as it relates to his cardiac injury, how much of this is myocarditis versus other mechanisms. Certainly myocarditis is probably part of this, but is that the sole underlying uh, mechanism? I think that's uh, up for debate, but we also know as it relates to athletes, myocarditis is one of our biggest fears. And by nature of what we're seeing, that's driving a lot of the conservative recommendations. Again, driving on some of the points we've already raised, we're going to find out a lot about the asymptomatic COVID patients, athletes, the mildly symptomatic infected athlete, and exactly what's going on as we generate all of these data. And there's a real need for that. Because over time, hopefully, maybe we can relax some of these recommendations. They are conservative, no doubt about it. But until you have the data to know exactly what's going on with a healthy athlete's heart, we just felt it was important to be conservative. Matt? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I mean, I, I think the approach is a starting place. And it's not going to be maybe where we are in a year from now or, or even sooner than that. But 
protecting the athlete has always been in the forefront of, of everyone on this conversation's minds and making sure that they are safe. We can always relax them over time, but the exact mechanisms are unclear. We know that from just experience that folks can get to myocarditis and have minimal symptoms and try and push through them. And that leads to worse outcomes in myocarditis. So being conservative and making sure that there's no active cardiac involvement is really the hallmark of the recommendation. Ian, do we have any data on cardiac issues from COVID-19 in children or adolescents yet who overall obviously seem to have less severe illness? And that could be just across the board, even the inflammatory response that we're seeing now that's going around in, in a rare situation around the country. I think early on, as we've all mentioned, that uh, the thought was this is a primarily an adult disease, and, and it's an adult disease that affects those that have other comorbidities. But now we know that it can affect the pediatric population. And, and of those patients that are admitted to the ICU, more than half of them have some comorbidity, obesity being one of them, asthma being another common one. But even in those patients, the cardiac manifestations were less common, much more common in adults in the pediatric population. But uh, this new multi-system inflammatory syndrome associated with the coronavirus has got a much higher prevalence of the cardiac disease. And there's a study that came out of circulation this last month looking at uh, people that are admitted to the ICU. I think that 25 or 35 patients total, a good portion of them had uh, ejection fractions less than 30% when they presented. Now, the majority of them improved with uh, immunoglobulin therapy, the IVIG therapy. But that's the population that I'm most concerned about. I think that the majority of patients that are being admitted to the ICU with the COVID infection are not showing a lot of cardiac disease, uh, but that multi-system inflammatory syndrome patient population I worry about. And I worry about the acute process, but also we know with uh, these inflammatory syndromes that in a, a subset of those patients, they can get coronary artery vasculitis and uh, like with Kawasaki syndrome, and those patients can have downstream effects from that vasculitis process. They can get these very abnormal coronary arteries, and they think the last thing you want in an athlete is an abnormal coronary artery. And I think some of those patients will slip through the cracks. One of the things we know, we know and across the board is that patients aren't going in to see their physicians. And if they, so someone has a fever for a few days and maybe a rash, they may not go see their doctor because they're worried about being infected, social distancing. There, I think are there, there going to be patients that we miss the diagnosis of this multi-system inflammatory disease, and they may end up having these coronary artery abnormalities down the line. So I think there's much to be learned. And I, you know, 60 million or more children between the age of 12 and 25, children, young adults, that's a huge population we're dealing with. I think as we collect this data, we're going to find more out about this, uh, what the effects are from this, these COVID infections. Ian, a quick question. My understanding is that the multi-system inflammatory syndrome is is a later presentation. Is that right? It's meaning right. like it's not, not like how? What's the time frame again? Is it typically? Well, it, I think it's it's variable. I think because even in that study that was done in Europe, I think twenty five out of the thirty five patients had the antigen test positive, but ten did not. So they had previous infections. So some were in that acute phase, and some are in the basically the antibody phase, the recovery phase. And Kawasaki's disease is out there, and I think there's any patients that may have had a COVID infection and then get this multi-system inflammatory disease. And whether it's truly COVID-related or it's true trend-unrelated, I think there's, there seems to be a strong association. But if someone has antibodies, which a good number of pediatric patients out there are going to have antibodies, and then they have this multi-system inflammatory syndrome, are the two related? 
quite possibly, but I don't think in every case it will be the case. I think there are going to be some patients who have antibodies that didn't, it wasn't related to coronavirus. It's going to be a very interesting question to ask down the line. No, I had a question for Ian and Andy that Jonathan and I have talked about. You mentioned that it's going to be interesting when we collect the data. Are, are either of you involved in any uniform collections that, that are occurring, or is it just through your own institution and, and some of your sphere of influence? I think we would best be served if there was an opportunity to be uniform about collecting the data as, as best we can. Well, I think in our institution, it's primarily at the ICU level because that's where we're seeing the most severe disease. Agreed. In the Big Ten, we've had some discussions about pooling our data. You know, all 14 schools are going to be doing essentially the same thing. And so it seems like an opportunity to pool data and be able to you know, identify how much of a risk this is. I think there's going to be a fair amount of appetite to that as we start to bring other sports back. So the first sport coming back at every school is football, right? And, and football has a lot of resources. No one minds spending money on football. But then as we start bringing back the tennis team and the crew athletes, you know, people start to worry about the budget a little bit more. There's data that you know maybe some of the things that we're doing are unnecessary or excessive. I think there's going to be interesting be interest in um, in pulling back some of the uh, testing and and interventions that we're doing. So I think there's going to be appetite from all the schools in the Big Ten to start to pool our data. We have not engaged in a formal collaboration yet, but I anticipate that we probably will. I like what you're saying, and and also the football team is probably the largest team on your campus, right? So there's a, a an opportunity to learn more about any sequelae, follow-up of, of any tests for those who are found to be positive? Uh, do they need repeat testing? What about the development of antibodies? All of those things are going to be critical to learn from, as you say, to, to guide maybe the, the, the winter. One of the things I liked about that uh, the article published is it addresses not only the athlete, but the coaches, because obviously that's going to be key as you have these coaches that are potential carriers and how that affects the team and restricting them as much as the restricted athletes. Yeah, the cohorting there is the challenge, right? It's reasonably easy to cohort our athletes, keep them in a small group. So if we do have a positive, we can contact trace efficiently with that group. But the coaches bounce back and forth between those different cohorts. The coaches are going to be the tricky part when we do have a positive to deal with the contact tracing, isolation, quarantine procedures. I go through the same process as our coaches and administrative people in football. I need to get tested here sometime in the next week or so. And then anytime I'm in the building, I have to use full PPE, uh, face mask and, and shield to decrease my risk of both acquiring and transmitting the virus. But yeah, if I have an athlete that I've been in close contact with, I go through the same quarantine procedures as the athletes or coaches do. I mean, there's so many ways this can go wrong. I mean, I mean <laughs> okay. think about our cohort groups in the first place, right? I mean, okay. our, our first level cohort are the people that live together. Our second level cohort are the people that train together, so our lifting groups. But then our third level cohort are our position groups. So let's say for the sake of argument, you have a quarterback who tests positive. You quarantine all your quarterbacks, and what do you do then? It's interesting that we've had this discussion about staff members. I've thought about this in great detail over the last week. The conversations, again, going back to Georgia Tech, as we really start thinking about this blueprint and this phase strategy of, of on multiple levels of coming back. And I've thought in detail about our physicals and exposures of athletic trainers and coaches who dealing with many coaches that in different levels tend to sometimes be the ones that don't care, do not take care of themselves the best, have substantial underlying cardiac risk and morbidities. We're trying to protect all these individuals. And we, we speak in great detail about the athletes, of course, uh, but there are so many other levels and things that we should really consider as it relates towards the return to training and, and to the field as it relates towards these other individuals. 
We'll be right back after a break and continue our discussion about concerns for athletes' hearts following COVID-19 infection. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We're back. Continue our discussion with Drs. Kim, Martinez, Law, and Peterson about cardiac concerns for athletes with COVID-19. Lots of questions, certainly not enough answers yet. I'm hoping to get some clarification on some of the recommendations in the document itself. I'm going to reference the document. I'm going to quote something here and love to get your guys' take on your discussion as far as this goes. In the document, it says, for athletes who remain asymptomatic and are negative for COVID-19, return to exercise training is permissible without additional testing. Makes sense. However, asymptomatic athletes who test positive for COVID-19 antigen, active infection, should refrain from exercise training for at least two weeks from the date of positive test result and follow strict isolation guidelines. Again, also makes sense and probably from a symptom standpoint if they're not feeling good. But for those asymptomatic individuals with detected COVID-19 antibodies in response to prior infection, we recommend similar evaluation as the asymptomatic athlete with positive COVID-19 test results and cardiac testing should be considered if there is a concern for cardiac involvement. Have several questions on these statements. So first, the way I'm reading this would imply that all athletes would be tested, correct? Well, I think this kind of gets back to some of my initial comments as it relates to thinking about this on two different levels. And one is a public health level that is beyond certainly my scope. And it is 100% accurate to say that the recommendations are based on a COVID test or symptoms that are consistent with COVID. There is that gray area, which is the COVID unknown, no symptoms and what to deal, do with those athletes. And I think it is kind of a really a partnership with our infectious disease public health experts about the question of testing. I mean, obviously, you don't have to be infectious disease or public health to know a lot about the disease. And we know that you can have it and not have symptoms. And certainly having an accurate test um, with high sensitivity that's robust and easy to you know perform on and mass numbers would be very useful and that will likely be a part of how this is all going to work downstream we're in a little bit of kind of a work in progress i think as it relates towards getting there i think one of the things that we didn't want to take away from the document was to say that institutions you have to test everyone i think 
again, that's beyond the purview of what us as cardiologists really wanted to take from that. For the question, and just based off the disease process, we know it's not a disease that once you're symptomatic, that's when you're infectious and that's going to drive all of this. And there, there is that population that does not have symptoms. That's a real challenge to identify. And I think that's where the big challenge is going to be. And I think that's where the data is going to be very helpful for us is once we find out if there are any issues that we're seeing in these asymptomatics, that's going to guide us a lot better on tweaking these recommendations, so to speak. But we know that some individuals have tested positive on repeat testing. So is the exercise restriction recommendation only for that two weeks after the first positive test, or does this go until indefinitely? I think I would probably, again, stay conservative with regards to that. I don't know what to do with a repeat test in terms of what that means for the individual. So I would probably suggest that you would hold them out, perhaps wait for an antigen test to become negative. We're still learning so much about the antibodies as well. We've sort of lumped them all together, mostly because of our lack of firm understanding of what that means. Does that mean immunity? How long does the immunity last? When you turn negative from an antibody, over time, what will that mean for you? I think if you choose to do a repeat test, then some decisions, again, deviate from a general recommendation. I still think it's best to be conservative. If we still think that they are carrying the virus or potentially still shedding the virus, I would be concerned about returning to play immediately with what we currently know. Again, this is just the beauty of how this is evolving. And these two questions as it relates towards the repeat testing. And number one, I think there are some studies that suggest that some of these positive tests of people who keep shedding quote unquote virus after four weeks, that is probably dead parts of the virus. Now, again, I think that needs to be followed up in, in, in rigorous fashion and certainly to be able to state that as fact and to which you would, you know, if somebody tested four weeks positive out, you wouldn't necessarily be concerned that they had it. Perhaps there's a suggestion that may be the case, but we're not quite there yet. So I would agree that, again, being conservative is probably the most prudent approach. I'm seeing headlines today that antibody testing, the CDC is saying that it's 50% of the tests are garbage. So how antibody testing is really going to help, I think, is a work in progress for these quote-unquote positive antibodies and treating them as a whatever type of cardiac risk stratification, I think, is the jury still out because it doesn't appear to me that that's a situation to where we have a reliable antibody test, at least with some of the headlines that I saw today. So really important questions. I do think that as we get more rigorous testing, that will help. Is it possible that if you had an athlete who was symptomatic, tested positive, you waited the two weeks to the point where the symptoms went away, but perhaps maybe within that two-week window, if the symptoms went away quickly and you had reliable testing and you could potentially do cardiac risk stratification before two weeks, these are all things that are certainly possibilities as we wait for data to hopefully potentially not be so conservative over time. As mentioned numerous times, you know, we're just not there yet. Well, and, and don't say that out loud. I need buy-in to quarantine my athletes for two weeks when they test positive. <laughs> yeah, no, I, no I, seriously, I, I, I mean, there's the logistics boots on the ground. You know, there's a lot of unknown unknowns with this. Yeah. But, you know, anytime we have someone test positive, we're going to wait until they're symptom-free and then wait another two weeks before we do our cardiac testing and start graduated return to exercise. It's just one of those things where, yeah, there's a lot of gray area in what's happening in real life. But at the same time, you have to have a rule and a policy about how you're going to approach it. So that's the way we're approaching it. That's the way the most of the Big Ten schools are approaching it. It's not necessarily the best public health guidance, but at the same time, you just got to have a process. And right, oh, yeah, right no, now, I, that's I, the best data we have. And so that's what we're going to do. I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, I think absolutely. I mean, that, that was in the guidelines that 
Dr. Martinez and I were both a part of and 100% endorsed. I think the point I was just trying to make was, again, over time, is, is, is there potential for a lot of this to change? And I think we all have to submit the answers, yes. But for now, it is. I would agree that that is the right approach. One of the things you started with was, should everyone be tested? And I think we intentionally stayed out of recommendations in that truly uncharted, uncharted water. Those who have not been tested and have, quote, no symptoms and no exposures, we have no idea what to do with because we do know that some of the symptoms can be quite subtle and that athletes often get breathless and may just plow through them without recognizing that this is potentially putting them in harm. So I don't know what to do with the group that's untested. And so far, we've been able to sort of avoid any recommendations in that group. I think the hard part here is trying to sort out that that breathlessness. Is that really coming from cardiac or is it coming from pulmonary? Because we know that this affects the pulmonary system as well. I mean, obviously we can do testing and things like that, but I think it's going to be a little bit challenging teasing that out. You know, I, I would give you this scenario that myself as a nearly 48-year-old male lifelong runner, recreational now, haven't had any COVID-type symptoms in the last three months. What would you tell me as someone who runs three times a week of what I should be doing if as an athlete, as far as testing, should should I get a test to see what category I'm in? Because I think that's the hard part when we're trying to stratify this is how do we know which category you're going to fall into here, right? Yeah, it's such a great question. The competitive athlete and the highly active individual, as we've defined in prior pieces of work from our ACC Sports and Exercise Council, certainly to draw the line in the sand is, uh, it's very hard to be that precise. Sometimes it's easy, right? So if you are a long-term marathon runner for years, you're a triathlete, you go to CrossFit multiple times, a couple times a week, I think it's easy to classify you as a highly active individual. Defining yourself as a recreational runner running three times a week yeah, that can be a bit challenging. I mean, as it relates to sports cardiology, what we always are very kind of gray in our definition. We certainly don't want anybody to think they can't see us in a sports cardiology clinic if they like to exercise. And they, you know, we define as really just having a high emphasis on exercise and activity as somebody who we would see. In this context, it's a bit challenging. Uh, the majority of patients uh, are obviously going to be folks who are just exercising for general health. And to say that everybody needs to have a COVID test for that specific reason, or maybe more precise, oh, well, if you want to get back to exercise and you've been overall healthy, you need to have a troponin, an ECG, and an echo. Well, number one, that's really not feasible. And it's certainly not something that a healthcare system can uh, can handle to have millions and millions of people who just want to exercise for 150, 175 minutes a week. And for those individuals, you probably don't need to have this type testing. Again, that's a general opinion recommendation that if you are overall healthy, you don't have underlying comorbidities, and you've had the infection and your your symptoms have gone and you've you've gone through kind of a period where you've waited you probably can slowly bring yourself bring your activity levels up without having to have extensive testing now we're probably going to learn more data as just relates towards the general population and what's going on with mildly ill cases of covid-19 and perhaps they, that may change but i think for now it's probably more prudent to not necessarily say that across the board for for anybody now, if you have underlying heart issues, patients in our clinic that had a heart attack, heart failure, diastolic heart failure, whatever, and they're trying to get back to exercise, again, they may not need this type of risk stratification, but they're probably going to want to involve their general cardiologist as it relates towards building back up their exercise tolerance. I want to follow up on that a little bit, John. When you talked about, I mean, basically you described the mild symptom patient who wasn't hospitalized, right? 
But I'm looking at your your algorithm here. But if I follow that algorithm of mild symptoms, not hospitalized, we talk about rest and recovery with no exercise, like we talk about two weeks without convalescence, without resumption of exercise after symptom resolution. But then we have evaluation here, and then there are specific tests that are recommended there. That's a little different from what you just described to me. And that's, I think, where a lot of the confusion comes in here with this algorithm, I think, for a lot of us, is the mild symptoms, not hospitalized patient, an otherwise healthy individual, which we're talking about for most athletes here. How do we stratify that out? And, and who really does need to get the high sensitivity troponin? Who needs to get the 12 ECG? Who needs to get the echo? Well, again, I, I think there's always going to be gray cases and you're going to have to approach. I'd love to hear uh, Matt's opinion on this as well. There's always going to be these cases that are challenging. But I can tell you if I, you know, in my clinic, which are primarily built on recreational master athletes who either long-term marathoners or triathletes and are putting in 40 to 50 miles a week of really intense levels of exercise and take it seriously to a recreational competitive level, I, I would, for the time being, risk stratify these individuals. And these are the folks that are going to be coming to us in clinic probably you know, we, I've just started resuming my one session a week now live, and I suspect um, rather than telemedicine. And I think over the coming months, the new consultations are going to start building up. I've already had two to start off that were sick in March that are trying to come back. Again, you're not going to be able to come up with a strict definition of, well, if you exercise this many hours, this many miles per week, that's the cut point in the sand. I think there is going to have to be a little bit of almost approaching it on a case-by-case on -case basis when you start getting in that gray zone rather than some of these more cases on the clear extreme as it relates towards the recreationally competitive individual. What do you think, Dr. Martinez? Yeah, so one of the challenges is making sure that we read the document correctly. So what I love about it is that it says evaluate by a medical professional for consideration of return to, act to activity. And then all of those testing, as you indicate, are below that. The key is that you're meeting with somebody who's going to be able to tease out who that individual is. Are they a young person with no risk factors who's entering a low level of risk in terms of exercise, endurance risk? Or is it a 52-year-old who had a small heart attack, whatever that means, five years ago and has now recovered well. And I'm concerned because I know that they had a small infarct in the past and I'd like to investigate that further. What kind of athlete are they? Are they really a triathlete that I need to sort through? And I think the important part is that it's being seen by somebody who can tease through all those little pieces and decide what that risk is. And we do this all the time, right? Sometimes you decide... This is an individual, even though it deviates from what the guidelines are, I'm going to do a little bit more in this individual for whatever evaluation you're, you're doing. And this ends up being the same thing. So at the end of symptom resolution, I'd like to know about who they were. Because the decision about being hospitalized sometimes is where you live. Is there is their ability to be hospitalized? Did you say, no chance? Am I going to that hospital? Uh, I don't feel that bad. I'm going home. Or were there some sort of rigorous decision-making process to decide that your symptoms were not significant enough to warrant hospitalization? That professional that you meet with, who hopefully knows you, is going to be able to sort through where you fall on the spectrum of risk. But I think that's a challenge here, right? And this is where I'm reading and interpreting your algorithm a little bit differently than what you just described it. I'm reading this as you said, evaluation by a medical professional for consideration of return to activity. I'm reading that as this is the evaluation that needs to be done by a medical professional to consider the return to activity for the patient with mild symptoms who wasn't hospitalized. And these are my things I need to consider doing. The only thing that's considered in there is symptom-guided testing. 
the other things, those three other things, the high sensitivity troponin, the 12 DCG, and 2D echo, those to me, the way I'm reading this document, and again, I'm, I'm reading this as a sports medicine guy, is that's what I should do in this patient. I think this is where I think some of the confusion comes from with those of us out there, and especially this is going to be a bigger confusion for those of us in the pediatric adolescent world, is who, who really do we need to do? Do we need to do that on every single person? And when we talk about risk stratify, well, again, there has to be some other thing. Are we just doing it with people with comorbidities or how are we sorting that out? And that's, I think, where the confusion lies with this. At least for me, it does. I think one of the things is, is a scale of this because there are just under a half a million NCAA athletes, but there are about 8 million high school athletes. We can start with this population of uh, college athletes and do the testing and, and get this data back. And I think it's great what uh, Matthew talked about, getting some collective data about from all these institutions, as long as we have a standardized test, which is a whole other problem. But I think once we set the standard, what's going to happen is, what about these 8 million high school athletes? Because in the fall, this whole process is going to start again, scaled up many fold. And I think we're, we feel somewhat protected that the athletes, at least the moderate, not the extreme athletes, seem to be at a lower risk population. But I don't think we're going to know the answer until we start collecting this data. Mark, to answer your question, what testing needs to be done? I'm hoping as we collect this data, and NCAA sports is a great place to start, we'll, we'll be able to answer that. But I think that this is, this is a nice framework drawn out in this JAM article. Ian, I'll give you a scenario there. Say we have a U.S. gymnastics athlete who is going to fall most likely in the pediatric population that comes into your clinic next week who had COVID three weeks ago and is symptom-free now. Are you going to do a bunch of testing on her? And is she different than my daughter who was an Excel Silver gymnast? Do we do something different there in those two different groups? Well, I'll do more tests on your daughter because I like you. But the, uh, <laughs> actually, I think that it, it's a great question. And, you know, I, I think about the, the acute process, but this multi-system inflammatory syndrome, you know, if you had the disease, you have to be on the lookout. So, you know, if your daughter had the disease, it's not getting antibodies, and now she has a fever for two days, she's definitely getting worked up. But if she's otherwise asymptomatic, I think early on we'll probably do more testing, and then we'll, we'll get the sense of reassurance as more of these tests come up unremarkable. And then I think we'll probably change our practice. But early on, I think we will have to collect this data especially in these high-end NCAA athletes. I think Ian brought up a really good point just about the numbers. And again, this is something that I, that I touched on earlier, which is actually in the viewpoint, but there's a, a really important point of emphasis. When we put together these recommendations, we, we really wanted to emphasize that, you know, these should really be taken in the context of what's feasible and take into account healthcare resources, healthcare expenditures, the population that you are encountering. Certainly, as we drop below the NCAA level, now we're dealing with the millions of high school athletes across the country. To get a echocardiogram, a troponin, and an ECG in an office visit for every single one of these athletes is just not going to happen. And these recommendations were meant to be a framework. They're expert consensus recommendations. They're not evidence, class one level evidence to where you can't refute that this is the right thing to do. Otherwise, you could potentially have an athlete you know, die and this is, you know, you're going to have an impact on mortality if you don't follow these recommendations. It's meant to help guide the practitioners who are seeing these, you know, these millions of high school athletes across the country and can take into account with, okay, so this is what we know about concerns for cardiac involvement among these group of hospitalized patients. This is the athlete I'm seeing and, and what can I do to 
to best screen and risk stratify this athlete based off these recommendations and, and what I have to work with. Nobody's saying that if you don't do a troponin, high sensitivity troponin on a 17-year-old athlete who doesn't have great healthcare insurance, that you're doing them a disservice. We have no idea. It's just something that we wanted to put forth as something that we're considering right now and then have that put into context for the specific athlete as you're dealing with them. And I also think this just goes in line with the the question of when you look at the mild symptom and you're you're seeing recreational athletes, I'm kind of jumping on what uh, Dr. Martinez was saying. And it is something that we do every day in the sports clinic is kind of sifting through the specific athlete at hand and what they tell me they do and the intensity and all these different factors. You know, when we, with myocarditis, it's certainly the, the high end physical activity in the context of underlying inflammation, potentially underlying scar that can precipitate the arrhythmia, which could lead to sudden death in our young athlete. It really is to a degree, kind of the, the intensity and the degree of activity that's driving a lot of the, the potential concern, which you're going to see in your collegiate athletes, you're going to see in your high end competitive and recreational athletes. But again, if you are healthy out there and you're 35, no medical problems, and you had mild COVID and you just want to get out and run 15 miles a week because that's your baseline level of health. I don't think that we're saying in this that you need to go out and get an echo and ECG and a troponin. In fact, we didn't really have time to get into the definition of the highly active individual by nature of how long the piece was, but it really is meant to emphasize more of the competitive level individual. We discussed the topic of if cardiac involvement is found, we should follow the myocarditis return to play guidelines. Can you discuss what those are for our listeners? If you go to the current published document about how to handle somebody with symptoms that fit as well as objective measurements of features that are consistent with myocarditis, then most of the current recommendations would be to refrain from the majority of activity or really all activity for a period of three to six months, and then a reassessment prior to return to play for involvement of myocardial damage at that time. So usually that is an echocardiogram and sometimes can be more extensive testing, including stress testing and cardiac MRI to look for scar or LV dysfunction or active arrhythmias with exercise. The goal of that is to make sure that the athlete is safe to return to play as we know that myocarditis and activity worsens the disease and can lead to LV dysfunction, arrhythmias, and potentially sudden cardiac death. The goal of those guidelines is to make sure that there's no active myocarditis or any prior evidence for cardiac involvement before returning to exercise. I mean, we know that myocarditis overall is not something that kids deal with a lot, fortunately, one in 100,000. We know that kids with COVID-19 are a small percentage. If you're someone like Andy or I in a sports medicine clinic who may wind up seeing one of these kids or... We're talking a general practitioner, so that could be your pediatrician, your family practice doc, nurse practitioner, PA. They get a kid that comes into their office, and we have those providers now who are having to screen for this. From our cardiologists, so that Ian, John, and Matt, I'd love your take as far as how would you advise that general practitioner or a sports medicine physician like myself, what should we go through as far as that risk stratification for us? Because obviously not every kid's going to wind up going to the cardiologist. How do we help that person kind of stratify and giving them kind of the nuts and bolts for this? First off, we've got to get them back into the office because as we know, people are avoiding doctors as a whole. The, the myocardial infarction rate, the stroke rate's gone up outside the hospital because people aren't going to the doctor. So first we got to get them into the doctor. But the uh, American Heart Association 
that, that 14 step questionnaire will address many of the myocarditis symptoms. And so I think that's where I'd start. We've already got that tool in place, but the, I think you can also address, has there been, uh, I, I would add question 15 or step 15 is, has there, has there been, have they been exposed to COVID? Uh, did they have a COVID infection? And then from that point on, that would guide therapy. That's the way I approach ECG uh, and echocardiogram. I go through that the 14 steps and then it's okay, you are in a high risk category, so you will get more testing. And then, of course, it's sequential testing and, you know, may get exercise testing, may get a cardiac MRI, but it start with the basics of an EKG and echocardiogram if there are red flags. And with myocarditis, it'd be fever, fatigue, uh, and obviously viral syndrome and the exposure. I think I would agree with that from, you know, again, obviously uh, my did med-peds as a residency, but I haven't seen kids in years, so I, I will defer to the pediatric specialist for sure. But that sounds reasonable. I mean, again, as we've emphasized throughout this podcast, primarily this is more of an adult issue as it relates towards the predilection for acute cardiac injury. So I think uh, given the uh, risk of myocarditis or the prevalence of myocarditis is over on the lower side, and in general, it's a lower risk population overall, that not jumping to all sorts of testing and it's probably not the right way to go so much as a, a good history and physical, which is still a part of the JAMA Rex overall. I mean, we don't want to just don't want to de-emphasize that enough that really the history is probably the most important part of that in terms of catching, picking up clues for from these in athletes as it relates to potential underlying concerns. But I, I think that sounds totally reasonable from the pediatric standpoint to me. So, so I, I agree. And I'll just add in that there really is no specific reliable way to confirm resolution of inflammation in myocarditis. And it can vary. That's why I say three to six months to return to illness. And then if you decide to, to do testing after a known episode of myocarditis, you are looking for confirmed markers, but the absence of them does not completely exclude residual inflammation. So I love that you started with getting them back in the office, having a conversation with them. I spent a fair amount of time educating the athlete and those around them looking for signs and symptoms that might be suspicious enough that would warrant, again, another reassessment. And maybe that's just a phone call. But I think opening up that dialogue to allow both the family and the athlete to engage in their own care and facilitate that discussion with you is, is one of the things I spend most of the time in an athlete who I've decided I think is low risk and I'm not going to perform additional aggressive testing on. Handy, I'd love your take on this. When we're talking about the PPE, you and I both know that many states now have changed their requirements for the PPE this year in response to COVID. Some states have now postponed having PPE evaluations for this year or have grandfathered in an additional year for an evaluation. Do you think that may cause us to run into some troubles with this potentially? Well, I mean, there's a million pitfalls here, right? So regardless of what we do, we're going to run into trouble. You know, I think you and I have probably talked about this before. I'm not a big fan of the PPE in general. I don't think it does a whole lot to improve health and safety. I think it's probably a barrier to sport participation for a lot of athletes. I think it's probably a waste of time for healthcare providers. So not, not to be too pointed about this, but at best, it's, we're probably wasting our time and spinning our wheels to the PPE. Clearly, there's people that are going to fall through the cracks, right? We're going to see athletes who had COVID or have active infection they end up having bad outcomes as they return to sports. I, I think that's just the cost of doing business at this point. You know, we can, we can do our best to try to perfect student, to protect student athletes. We can do our best to make sure that we're prepared when someone has an event. But boy, I think we got to be ready for these bad cases when they come. And let's hope that they don't, right? 
Yeah, but hope isn't a great strategy, right? I mean, I, I think you got to be ready for it. I think the most important thing here is making sure we have AEDs on the sideline, that we have athletic trainers available on the sideline who can attend to medical emergencies when they occur. You know, we can do all the fancy cardiac testing in the world, but if we don't have frontline people who are able to deal with emergencies when they happen, it doesn't matter. Coming back to our athletic trainers again. It's a great point. All comes back to an excellent emergency action plan in the end. And I think I heard a conversation this morning, I think it may have been yesterday, about how that there isn't one specific way to prevent the spread of the virus. And I think there's no specific complete answer to how to protect the athletes. And all of the things you're talking about help protect the athlete. You're assessing them ahead of time. And, and clearly the EAP and, and an AED are going to be part of that for that group that no one suspected, that no one would have done anything differently with. But we still do need that final common pathway for protection. I think that's my key point. And we, all the ECG screening techniques we have now will fall short. So our best strategy is prevention of the sudden cardiac arrest with AED and the chain of survival. If I can uh, ask one question, because we, we talked about the vagaries of what testing needs to be done, but you also put in there the gradual return of activity. And perhaps Andy can address this. How do you tell a collegiate athlete to gradually return to activity? Because that seems like it's a challenge. Yeah, they got to work with their coaches. People, when they come back, it's going to be pretty obvious most of the time how deconditioned they are, how ready they are to go. With something like concussion, it's codified, right? We've got rules about what that looks like. When people are returning from other types of injuries, it oftentimes ends up just being what they tolerate. You know, we're really dependent on our strength and conditioning coaches in the weight room to tell us, you know, how someone is tolerating the load that they're seeing, what the coaches are seeing on the field. Yeah, the medical team really has to work with the coaching team on this to make sure that someone is working back in a process that makes sense for them. There's no right answer for someone. It's not like we can say, you know, you should be doing 10% of your volume the first week and 20% of your volume the second week. That, it just doesn't make sense. People are going to either jump in ready to go or people are going to jump in you know, a long way behind and a lot of, have to do a lot of remediative work before they're actually ready to go. So there's not an easy answer to that. I, I think that's maybe the common theme of this whole episode is that there isn't an easy answer for these things. But boy, it's a team approach. You got to make sure you're strengthening the conditioning people and your coaches are on board and recognizing people when they're coming back to play that they're just not going to be full go when they come back right away. Andy, I almost see this as a way, like how we deal with infectious mononucleosis coming back after that three-week rest period. Yeah. You know, we're talking about we start to slowly work them back in, monitoring for that excessive fatigue that they may develop afterwards, and then pushing forward as their exercise tolerance. I could see it very similar to that. Yeah, I mean, the reality of it is that they suck when they come back, right? I mean, yeah. your first, I mean, your first few practices back are terrible. You feel awful, you perform poorly, you're rusty, like everything is bad. And if you've got a good coach and you've got good strength and conditioning people, you know, you work through that. You figure out what you need to do to remediate people, to get them back to a high level, and you get there eventually. And some people that happens quickly, some people that happens slowly, but there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to it. Great discussion, guys. I would love to get like a parting comment from each of you, just kind of your little take-home point to sum this up. Obviously, there's still lots and lots of questions that we have with this. Hopefully, as we go forward with professional sports starting up again, hopefully soon, as it sounds like in the last day or so, that that's going to happen. We'll get collegiate athletes and start to have some of this testing done. We'll have some better information to guide us, as with everything that we talk about with COVID-19 coming up. But let's start with Ian. Just anything that you have as a parting comment? I think number one is I don't think we should operate the extremes. I don't think we should set up a... a high school EKG screening, echo screening, and COVID testing because of this fear of very rare event. And I think also that the, the flip side is we can't catch everybody. You know, I would emphasize no CPR, get the chain of survival, 
know how to use an AED because if, with all the preventive screening we do, we're not going to catch everybody. That that my take home message. It, it gets off the subject of COVID, but I think it, in general, that's my approach with athletes and non-athletes alike. How about you, Matt? I'm going to try and sum up what we said earlier is that we just need more data, especially about the asymptomatic disease prevalence and, and what happens to the athletes to really better guide and, and to alter the, the recommendations we have. I think that many times it's been mentioned during this podcast that it's critical to engage the athlete and, and to, to have a participation of your medical professionals. And I think in doing so, we're going to be able to learn more about the immediate longitudinal outcomes how often, if at all, how often it's going to involve cardiac injury in this otherwise low-risk group. And I'm, I'm hopeful that in collaboration in your own small world or, or in, in, a, in, a, in a wider spread catchment, we'll be able to learn more, hopefully, in the next three or four months about specific ways to best manage this group. John? So just to say something different, not to reiterate the same excellent summarizing points, I'll just say a couple things. Some things that were said earlier, which I think are really key points. Number one is no matter what we do as it relates towards dealing with athletes as they come back, there's going to be risks and we're going to make mistakes. And there's going to be an unfortunate events that occur, hopefully no death, but just things are going to occur. And I think I would just encourage everyone to just be very thoughtful and careful as you come up with these algorithms, take into account what resources you have available, understand the data that we have, understanding that we need a ton more, but a little bit potentially to help and the emergency action plan. I think that is a really nice way. I'm glad we talked about that at the end because it's a nice way to really summarize this, that it, it really it does kind of boil down to some of the basics that we all know and believe in. Andy, I'll let you take it home. I've, I've got similar recommendations. I think I might um, call it down into two things that maybe could be hashtags. So the first is keep it simple, stupid, right? I mean, know what resources you have available in your campus or in your area. Uh, utilize those resources, but don't try to do things that you can't follow through on, right? If you can have all kinds of grandiose plans, and if you can't actually follow through on it, well, you're just going to be chasing your tail. Make sure that you're, well, maybe hashtag number two, be best at the basics, right? Figure out what you can do and do it as well as you possibly can. If there are certain things that you just don't have the resources to do, don't stress out about it, right? Figure out what you can do to make your athletes safer and do those as well as you can. Fantastic. So I'd like to thank my guests for this great discussion today. Hopefully this provides some additional clarity. Obviously, we still have a lot of unknowns for all of us here. Thanks again to Drs. Kim, Martinez, Law, and Peterson. You can check out the rest of our podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at pedsportspod, that's sports with an S. Please subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast streaming service, and please leave us feedback as it helps us get the word out about this podcast. You can also check out my other podcast, the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, where we explore topics geared to parents, coaches, and young athletes themselves at healthyyoungathletepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.